Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal, Lancashire Live and the Hull Daily Mail. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. And as always, I'm joined by Westminster editor Dan O'Donoghue. And as we say goodbye to August and kids start going back to school, we're also finally coming to the end of what I think has been a pretty gruelling Tory leadership contest for all concerned. We'll find out on Sunday whether Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak will be our next Prime Minister. And then early next week, Boris Johnson will officially offer his resignation to the Queen. I think it's fair to say he'll be handing over the in-tray from hell to his successor, with the energy and cost of living crisis at the top of a bulging to-do list. But after his tumultuous three-year premiership, which included a global pandemic, a war in Ukraine and more scandals than you could shake a stick at, what's been Boris Johnson's legacy to the north of England? Later on in the podcast, I'll be asking that very question to Ben Houchin, the Conservative Mayor of the Tees Valley and one of Mr Johnson's biggest supporters in the north. But Dan, you've been following the battle to replace Boris Johnson. I'm guessing you and other Westminster journalists have got to be feeling pretty relieved now it's all finally coming to an end. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a marathon uh, six weeks, hasn't it, really? We've had a dozen hustings up and down the country. Broadly, not a lot has changed, I suppose. I mean, going into the contest, Liz Truss was the favourite. And with each passing week, she's only really cemented that position further. Um, you know, we've had a lot of red meat from here for the Tory faithful from, you know, tax cuts, union crackdowns, grammar schools. And she's also uh, thrown in, you know, several Johnsonian style flourishes. She said she'd ignore Nicola Sturgeon if in office. She said the jury was out on whether President Macron was friend or foe. You know, she's made big pledges around tax cuts, but also spending big on things like Northern Powerhouse Rail. But, you know, we're unsure as to where some of this money is going to come from, given as you've said, you know, there's, there's there's obviously an energy crisis, a cost of living crisis. There's so many other things to be dealing with. I think Rishi Sunak, meanwhile, you know, it's not been a great contest for him. He he really did need to to do some some massive work this summer. But I don't know. He, I don't know what you think. But I mean, his scene has almost reminded me a little bit of um, Rory Stewart's bit to become leader in 2019. You know, he's tried to be a lot more upfront about the challenges ahead. And he's kind of refused to make big spending commitments or, or promises on tax cuts. You know, he also the other night refused to kind of rule out forcing households to take energy saving measures this winter. So, you know, it, it certainly seems that Sunak has run a bit more of a sober campaign. But but the Tory members have, have kind of gone for, I don't know, Johnson Mark II, I suppose, in some of the things that Liz Truss has been saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I mentioned the, the energy crisis earlier. And in fact, as we're recording this podcast, Boris Johnson's just given his last major speech, I think, and it, it's on precisely this subject. So what, what's what's he been saying and what, what do we know uh, on you know the biggest issue facing the country at the moment, arguably? What do Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss uh, think about how we're going to solve this or what have they said publicly anyway? Well, I mean, I, I think to be honest with you, I, I saw an interview this morning with the uh, the boss of Ovo Energy and I thought, I thought he called it pretty well, to be honest. He said, you know, the last 12 months have been wasted, really, you know, through Partygate, um, the leadership contest. There's, there's been precious little on this issue, and it's been coming down the track for a long time now. I mean, the speech that Boris Johnson gave this morning, I don't know. that. I mean, there wasn't, I mean, obviously, he's not going to make any commitments now. He's, he's, he's got days left in office, but he just, there was a lot of kind of backslap in there. There was, there was 
discussions about things that are already in place and, and not too much about what's going to happen in future. There was criticism there for Labour for not kind of going bigger on nuclear, but, you know, Labour have been out of office for, for 12 years now. It's been similar with, with Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, to be honest. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion over the over the last month about payments that are going to be made, that are already scheduled to be made. But, I mean, as anyone will know, I mean, the, the, they keep calling it a price cap. I mean, it's over £3,500 now. It's not much of a cap as far as most people are concerned. And the kind of um, pledges that have been made so far, I don't think will really touch the sides. So... Yeah, so I mean, they're going to really have to get to grips with this issue very, very quickly when they get into number ten. I think it'll be, you know, that the, it should be the top of um, the, the, the priority list. But you know, we have to wait and see really what, what what's going to come down the down the track. Dan, thank you. Now, before we hear from Ben Houchin, I'm very excited to introduce listeners of the Northern Agenda podcast to someone who we're going to be seeing a lot of in the coming weeks and months, or their work at least. The Northern Agenda has a new star signing in the form of Graham Bandera, former cartoonist at the Yorkshire Post and the winner of Britain's Best Political Cartoon in 2020. Graham's going to be producing a weekly cartoon on Northern politics for our newsletter and some of Reach's print titles. And in fact, the newsletter going out this Friday will have his first offering, and it's a cracker. He has just applied the finishing touches to his latest cartoon and is joining us from home in Harrogate. Graham, welcome to the podcast. Afternoon, Rob. Afternoon, Dan. It's great to have you on, and we're very excited to be uh, welcoming you to the Northern Agenda team. I think we're going to have a lot of fun together, taking a bit of a satirical look at what's going on in politics. And I think if if the last few years have been anything to go by there won't be a shortage of subjects to, to to write about and to draw about but for people who've who've not seen your work and obviously bearing in mind this is a podcast so people can't actually uh, see your cartoons perhaps you could just give us an idea of some of some of the cartoons like your politics cartoons that have had the biggest impact over the years you know working at the Yorkshire Post I'd say probably over the last couple of years since uh, since Johnson's tenure, um, any cartoon that really cuts Johnson down to size generally resonates with the general public. I always thought it's good to hold power to account, and he's been cut out too many times to be to be ignored. So I'd say over the last couple of years, he's been the focus of my daily attentions, really. Um, and I think in the end, deceit has unravelled him. Um, I've portrayed Johnson as, as a sewage pipe, as an apple core, a rotten apple core, an eaten mess. I've done him as the Lion King. Um, I've done him as an aeroplane entitled the Sleazy Jet. I've put him in Christmas songs in, instead of Let It Snow. I've done him with a Pinocchio nose, called it Let It Grow. We've had slap for carers with his, his poultry 1% pay rise offer to the NHS. Complete neglect. Um, I've done him as a pub landlord. They've vaccinated arms. So let's just say it's been very, very colourful and uh, energetic, certainly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a, I guess, Boris Johnson as Prime Minister is a gift for any political cartoonist. But I imagine a lot of people will be wondering about this, maybe, you know, aspiring cartoonists. How, how do you become a professional cartoonist and illustrator? Was it was it something you always wanted to do or did it sort of something you kind of fell, in, fell into? I've always drawn since I was since I was a young child and I was drawing on the walls and curtains at home. So it's something that I've always had in me, um, a creative gene, so to speak, and drawing is something I've pursued um, academically through childhood and into teenage years. 
I landed a role in the editorial department at the Yorkshire Post in 1998. So I sort of fell into that role, but I was at that time I was just producing graphics and adverts. Um, but generally, each graphic or advert, I would pursue an illustrative route. And a lot of my adverts featured sort of pocket cartoons and things. So it was from there on that I sort of branched out into doing political stuff. I was producing caricatures for opinion pages for sport. And then I managed to get a Saturday slot producing my own cartoon in the Yorkshire Post. So I did that for five or six years and sort of made it my own. From there on in, my sort of popularity grew and my passion for political cartooning. We've had a few years, haven't we, where the world of politics has been turned upside down every every few weeks and there's been more drama and sort of upheaval and craziness than any other time in living memory. Does, does that make it easier to do cartoons? I mean, it's all, almost there have been times where the news has been, truth has been stranger than fiction. I mean, how, how do you go about finding the right uh, way of do it, taking a satirical sort of cartoony take on you know the big on some of the big news events that we've been dealing with in the last in the last few years. Yeah, like you say, Rob, over the last few years, I mean, it's pretty much been a production line of ineptitude from from the Tory government. So each day, something's just landed on my lap. Could be a four par, you know, in, in a political speech, or somebody could be caught out. Um, it could be attacking a particular. Uh, issue with a manifesto so there's always something to go at um, so every day is, is is a different challenge really away from the, the humour side and, the, and satire we've also had tragic circumstances with Covid so that was another line of ammunition um, but with Covid I tended to take a more humanitarian point of view with my cartoons so it was important to get the tone right because you know, it's something that affects everybody um, I did a couple of uh, quite poignant cartoons you may have seen. I did uh, The Nurse with the Weight of the World on her shoulders. That was sort of a precursor to, to what we were to expect when, where the NHS was going to be under immense strain. That turned out to be the case. I also did a cartoon which was quite telling um, of a, an elderly lady in the supermarket. And that was based on a personal experience in my local supermarket where people were out panic buying um due to you know the the emergence of covid and it was just completely unnecessary really and a sad indictment of today's society so i'm always trying to find that balance between you know hard-hitting aggressive satire where we're actually poking fun and taking the mitt to getting the balance right between that and you know the tone of some really really poignant Telling cartoons which need to hit the spot and resonate with the general public. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be, obviously, uh, Northern Agenda readers will be uh, seeing your cartoons every Friday uh, in our newsletter and in some of Reach's print titles too. And you you grew up in Teesside and you you, you live now in, in North Yorkshire in, in Harrogate. So there must be a lot going on in Northern England that you think, like politics-wise, not just, you know, Westminster, but there must be a lot going on in this part of the world that that you must be chomping at the bit to do do cartoons on. There's so, much, so many big stories going on here, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, when I was at the Oxford Post, the general consensus was that there was a huge north-south divide. I still think that is very, very evident. And, you know, hopefully I'll be able to sort of portray that in my cartoons, working with yourself and Dan and... Uh, we can come up with a, a good strategy how to you know how to highlight that 
the challenge between Rishi and Truss is very, very flat now. I think we would pretty much know who's going to become the next PM. I'd take in the, the, the leadership challenge to uh, so being on last dinners at school and you've got a choice of sort of semolina and bad spam. And I think whoever gets it, we're in for a rough night and more of the same, I'm afraid. Um, that's just my quirky political stance, but obviously, you know, people think, may think differently. Um, but uh, I'm just looking forward, really, to to ridiculing, to humouring, and uh, to getting, getting my work back out there. Yeah, and as you say, we're, we're days away from Boris Johnson being replaced by either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. And for political cartoonists like yourself, where, you know, Boris, he's so distinctive, isn't he? He's such a, a gift to cartoonists. Is it going to make things harder, having a different person that you're drawing a lot? Or will you sort of relish a new challenge of a new a new uh, sort of person to be uh, satirising? I think you can get into the habit of becoming stale. So it is nice for a new, a new character to emerge. Quite exciting, actually, for a political cartoonist, for a new kid on the block to appear and you, you can you obviously you can get your teeth into i've drawn boris I've drawn boris a thousand times um it gets to a point where you don't even need any reference you, you sort of have this idea and you, you create your own character um, providing it's you know it's, it's a good likeness you can sort of develop that character as the months go on the same with rishi i've drawn rishi quite a lot now um you know since he became his sort of right hand man really and Chancellor and his popularity has grown um, with me in terms of drawing him because you can sort of depict him in some quite quite funny situations. But really, really looking forward to drawing Liz Truss. Um, she makes an appearance on my first cartoon um, for the Northern Agenda, which is quite um, quite interesting. So it's nice to, to have her uh, drawn up, ready to go. In various guises, hopefully. I don't. I don't think she'll be entirely uh, flattered by the uh, the way in which she's portrayed in, uh, in in this week's cartoon. But you know, maybe she'll maybe she'll have a sense of humour about it. It's the idea, more ridicule the better. She reminds me a bit of a ventriloquist's dummy. She's she's very wooden, and it's just sort of a, a rentacle every ten seconds. I think she's just sort of putting herself up there, and as a bit of a chancer, really. I'm not quite sure how she'll handle. You know, being in the public eye so much, she's almost quite serpent-like, and so that could be a, a way of portraying her in, you know, in my future endeavours. Yeah, well, there's plenty of scope in the coming weeks and months, I'm sure, to uh, sharpen your quill and do some uh, some biting satire. And Graham, it's great to talk to you. We're going to be seeing a lot of your work uh, in the coming weeks, and. For listeners to the podcast, do uh, sign up to the Northern Agenda newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk and you can get uh, Graham's uh, cartoons in your inbox every Friday lunchtime. And uh, it's great to hear from you. And now let's hear from our main guest, Ben Houchin. So one area of the country that's been thrust firmly into the political spotlight under Boris Johnson's premiership is the Tees Valley, where in recent years a succession of Conservative politicians have been elected in what was once a Labour heartland. It's been one of the places the Prime Minister has visited most during his tenure, and his supporters in this part of the world can point to several specific policies as evidence of his commitment to the area. 
Ben Houchen, the Conservative Metro Mayor of the Tees Valley, is one of them. So to get his view on Boris Johnson's legacy in the North, let's hear from him. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So casting your mind back to 2019, when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, you were still a relatively new mayor in the Tees Valley, but obviously you'd been active in politics in the area for a while. Did it feel different in terms of the way your part of the country was now seen by the government as opposed to how it had been seen in in years gone by? Um, I think it was the ba- it was a breakthrough moment, and it's again this is probably not going to um, uh, educate any of the listeners particularly well. But I mean, Labour had been going backwards in local, national, European elections, um, particularly in Teesside, since uh, two thousand and five. Um, and we all thought that breakthrough was going to happen in 2017. You know, we were 20 odd points ahead in the polls. Then obviously the manifesto came out and we all know what happened um, in the Theresa May general election. And I think the thing that then pushed everything over the edge was obviously Brexit and Boris as a character who, to be fair, for for years, I mean, he came up to Teesside when he was mayor of London and was seen as a bit of a rock star then as well. So I think the merging of Jeremy Corbyn, Brexit and Boris kind of just got us over the edge of a journey that's been going on for about 20 years now. Yeah, so it wasn't one single point that that made it happen. It, it was a, a gradual change over o, o, over the years. That makes sense. So obviously, Boris Johnson, his big, his big sell to the North was the, the levelling up agenda. But I mean, how much of that, in your view, and you've kind of alluded to it already, is down to politics and the fact that, you know, there were big swathes of Northern England that were previously out of reach to the Conservatives, which over the course of the period up to 2019 became winnable again. And how much of it is down to, you know, a genuine belief that tackling regional inequalities is the right thing to do? Or is it a, a sort of combination of the two things? No, I think it's fair to say. I mean, the local Conservative MPs and myself obviously absolutely acutely believe in areas like Teesside are just as valid, just as talented and have just as much to offer than anywhere else in the country, irrespective of our geographical location. And, you know, I, having known Boris pretty well over the last few years, I know he believes in it as well. I mean, I steal it from him, but the perfect line is that talent is distributed equally across the country, but opportunity is not. And when you speak to people in the street in places like Middlesbrough or Redcar, that resonates with them. You know, they don't feel any more inferior than any other person anywhere else in the country. But actually, it's demonstrably true to say that over the last 30, 40 years under governments of both colours, there has been a lack of interest, a lack of investment and a neglect of areas like ours, which Boris tapped into. And, you know, people always say, they say it more recently with Rishi, don't they? And you don't, you don't understand people like us. I mean, Boris is not necessarily a carbon cut out of somebody in Redcar, but he spoke to them and he identified with them and they got what he was trying to do. So it was actually about the agenda itself. And the reason we made progress in uh, the 2019 election is we were demonstrably showing delivery. I mean, people forget that in that first two years when I was elected from 2017 to 2019 with the Conservative government, even under Theresa May, there was huge amounts of progress being made that people could physically see and touch and smell. And that then led them to believe that it wasn't just rhetoric. Boris was something slightly different. He got Brexit done and they were seeing benefits in the local area, which led to this huge swathe of uh, Conservative MPs being elected in 2019. When that happened, obviously, Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, won a crest of a wave in terms of politics. There was lots of lots of promises made, lots of uh, rhetoric about uh, the things you've alluded to, about you know increasing opportunity for parts of the North that had been forgotten. Now, obviously, it hasn't been the three years for a number of reasons that Boris Johnson would have expected. But do you 
think that I mean, how how well do you think he's done against the promises that he made in 2019? And if he hasn't kept those promises, why why would you say that is? I think there are a couple of answers to that question, Rob. Typical politician style. I mean, in, in Teesside, yes, I think he has lived up to those promises. There's only so much you can do in a in a three-year period, especially when you've got that two-year global pandemic, which I think is a, a reasonably fair excuse to the government as to why it's not been able to deliver on its wider policy agenda, given that everybody was focused on trying to keep people safe, uh, manage the NHS and all those other things that people know extremely well. But Teesside kept on making that progress on the levelling up agenda. Like I say, it's not just uh, things like Teesside Airport, not just the Treasury to Darlington, the Freeport, the Steelworks site, the £300 million we've got from government to upgrade our public transport network. There's a huge amount going on. So on a local level, I can say absolutely. And that's one of the reasons uh, he won the election in 2019, because he'd already started that agenda before the general election and continued it afterwards, which again is why we ended up winning the by-election in Hartlepool last year and I was re-elected. Um, I think the second answer to that question is, it's one of the reasons why the government concentrates so much on Teesside is because it's probably true to say that it's one of the few, if arguably the only area, that can really point to significant progress in levelling up. And I think there is an element to it of going into the next general election and saying, look, levelling up is our top priority. Uh, we have done that. Look at Teesside. And we want to then share that with the likes of Doncaster, Stoke, Bolton and other areas across the country. But we haven't been as uh, advanced as we would like to because of war in Ukraine, COVID, cost of living crisis, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think there has been progress made, but not as much as they would like. But I think, if I'm being honest, I think everybody would accept that it's quite difficult to do that given the last three years that we've had. Yeah, it's it's been challenging for everyone, that's, that's for sure. And you've spoken about this already, but obviously in Teesside, there were things like the, the Freeport, the Treasury, HQ in Darlington, the prospect of lots of green jobs locally. But the fact remains, and it's come to light quite recently, that in the northeast as a whole, child poverty during the, the last few years has gone up rather than down. And it's places like Middlesbrough in your patch, which have some of the worst figures for child poverty in the country. Now, with that being the case, do, do, do you think that the Tees Valley is now a better place than it was three years ago, yet sort of in, in the round, given, given, every, given all those factors? The Tees Valley is absolutely a better place than it was three years ago, and it was a better place than it was five years ago. Is that to say that we don't have significant challenges? All of those things, Rob, that you say are true and nobody could deny and, and not accept. But that's why we're all so passionate about the levelling up agenda, right? And that's why those big projects that we're doing, I believe, in the way that I run my tenure, are so significant to making that change. Because when you had an area, let's just talk about Teesside, an area like Teesside is a post-industrial area, closure of a steelworks, significant decline over many, many decades, not just over the last few years. You can't tinker around the edges with you know, putting in, you know, £20,000 into a local community scheme or £100,000 into a local charity to support deprivation. Because all you're really doing there, while that is important, are dealing with the symptoms of an underlying cause. What you've got to do is fundamentally change and shake up the local economy. Now, if you start to bring in the UK's largest free port and we're starting to land large-scale manufacturers who are going to create more than 2,000 jobs, who are going to be paying significantly above the national average wage, never mind the average wage in the Tees Valley, and when you get things like 
1,500 senior civil servants on significant amounts of money being living in and based in the region, all of a sudden you start to create real economic change. And then fundamentally what you get is you get more employment, you get more employment opportunities, you get more money in people's pockets, and then you start to solve those underlying economic problems. Now, all that, that doesn't solve those things, for example, educational attainment, but what it does do is it allows you to say to, you know, little Johnny or little Jane who live in Redcar or Millsborough, they can walk out the front of their house and see that there is opportunity. Whereas five years ago, they wouldn't say that. And they would say, well, why? what's the point in school? Because there isn't anything for me. And my parents say there is no opportunity around here. And if I did want to try and succeed, I'm going to move away. Whereas if we do these things that people can now physically see, we now see young people saying, well, actually, I really want to get involved in the offshore wind sector or the number of young people who've been able to get graduate jobs or even apprenticeships with the Treasury and the Department of International Trade based in Darlington, who would never have considered that type of career before, are those green shoots. Now, I'm not saying that solves it, but by putting these things in place, it allows you to move the oil tanker in the right direction. And that's why levelling up, as you and I, I'm sure, agree on, Rob, as do all politicians across the North, irrespective of whether they're Tory or Labour, you know, levelling up is a long-term agenda because there are such systemic things to solve. But I think, like I say, we've got the furthest ahead. But let's be honest, we're only... Well, since my election, we're five years in. Since the general election, we're uh, basically three years in. And it's going to take 10, 15, 20 years to be able to to do what we all want to do and what we want to see in the north of England. So going back to Boris Johnson, obviously you in the Tees Valley can point to all the different things that his government has done for your area. But of course, there's no escaping the fact that the reason he won't be prime minister for much longer is that during his term, he was deluged by lots of different scandals and uh, you know it was the it was all those scandals that in the end have led to his demise as prime minister with, with that being the case if you were to as you're talking about people in middlesbrough or redcar if you were to talk to those people how, how do you think they would view boris johnson as a person as a, as a prime minister do people in your area still still like him generally so again, it depends who you speak to. And I do obviously speak to people in Middlesbrough and Redcoat quite regularly, Rob, as you would expect. Of course. Um, so if I give you a specific example. So here's a, an anecdote that is that happened a couple of weeks ago, where I was on the uh, former steelworks site, where we've got more than 700 construction workers demolishing, remediating land, of which uh, more than 90% of those people are from Teesside, local contractors, local workers. And I spend a lot of time, particularly on weekends when I've got a bit more time on site, speaking to them, finding out what's going on. And it does come up fairly regularly of, well, why are you getting rid of Boris? I, I quite like Boris. And they'll say things to me, you know, direct quotes. They will say things like, well, we all broke the rules a little bit, didn't we? We've all done just as badly as that. And I think they view it as slightly differently than other sections of society as well. So places like Redcar and Middlesbrough, I, I think are still... Uh, quite pro-Boris and quite pro the Boris agenda. That's not to say everybody is. There's definitely been a drop-off. And what I would say about that is the agenda of Boris Johnson is a strong one and it's a winning one. And, and it goes, I'm not, I'm not going to kind of do too much the cliched lines of, look, he got all the big calls right. But fundamentally on policy, he was completely sound and he was moving in the right direction. The thing that did for Boris Johnson, and I say this as a big supporter of Boris Johnson, it's like rule 101 in politics, isn't it? It's always the lie that gets you. It's never the issue. And what he should have done early on, which to be fair, he kind of did because it was briefed to the Times months before it came out and became a scandal, was, look, I'm really sorry. Didn't real, I completely forgot. Didn't even think about it. Yes, I probably shouldn't have had that piece of cake. I shouldn't have stood in that room for 10 minutes or whatever it was. We were in the middle of a pandemic. You know, we were right at the height of COVID. Completely just didn't think about it. I'm really sorry. Um, and I apologise. The problem he had wasn't, 
ultimately the thing that did for him wasn't the issue. It was the fact it was the months and months of being a bit cute with the truth, trying to push the media narrative in a certain direction instead of just holding his hands up and saying, fine. And that's the thing I think the people in the, the British public don't really like. They just want people to be straightforward. And I think if people were to say about Boris, they would actually agree with his agenda. He got lots of good stuff done. But those that didn't like him um, would talk about the, the lies and they would talk about the fact that he wasn't open and honest. But there is still a big chunk of people who would say, you know, lots of people that I know did just did worse than Boris. And if it was up to me, why are you getting rid of him? Because I'd vote for him tomorrow. I probably won't vote for the other two. If, if you're asking me those direct quotes that I'm speaking to people on the ground, those are the things that I've heard from them. Now, speaking of the the other two who will be one of whom will be taking over from Boris Johnson, you've nailed your colours pretty firmly to the mast of Rishi Sunak in terms of who you want to see as the next leader. But regardless of whether he or Liz Truss is chosen, do you think there's going to be as much political attention on Teesside and other areas of the North and what they need to succeed as there has been in the last three, four, five years? Or is that going to drop off because of other big things that are on the agenda? It's an interesting one. So, I mean, there is a risk that the um, the spotlight and the priority that's been given to the levelling up agenda in particular um, could wane. Do I think it will? No, I don't. I think if Rishi wins, one of the main reasons that I backed him, you know, he's a Northern MP. He's understood Teesside since he was a backbencher, albeit he was only a backbencher for a short period of time because he went into government pretty quickly. And he gets places like Teesside. And you look at the support that he gave as well as Boris to Teesside. If he wins, you know, I'm more than confident that we'll continue to make progress, as will large parts of the North, right? It won't just be a Teesside thing. He does get the levelling up agenda and has tried, even when he was Chancellor, to show people that there's more to London than the South East uh, for the UK. But having said that, again, in a very personal kind of parochial kind of way, Liz also gets Teesside. I mean, she helped move the DIT to the Treasury campus in Darlington. She was very pro uh, the Teesside Freeport. We worked on the Freeport board together when they were, it was co-chaired by Rishi uh, and Liz. So we're also very fortunate that, that Liz is also supportive. The question you've ultimately got isn't whether the levelling up will continue to be a priority, because it has to be, otherwise we will lose seats in the north of England. I mean, that goes without saying. There are people that will only vote for us if they can see progress over the next couple of years. The issue is, because of the cost of living crisis agenda, and in particular, the Conservative Party contest, what I'm most frustrated about, and it's one of the main reasons I didn't want the contest in the first place, is it was going to skew the priorities towards Conservative members, of which many of those are valid concerns, but it's not necessarily the conversation that the country wants at the moment. And whoever comes in, I think, will probably find themselves in a much more difficult position. There'll be some pretty um, swift action that has to be taken on cost of living and energy. If Liz gets in, obviously, big concentration on things like tax cuts, which, again, one of the reasons I couldn't back her was I just couldn't see a clear definition on how you trade that off against the levelling up agenda, because by definition, levelling up does require investment, and that will include public sector investment, not just private sector investment. And you just worry that over the next kind of six or 12 months, not that it won't be a priority, but there will be little done on levelling up because of the other things that have stepped forward that have also been heightened as a result of the contest uh, that we're currently seeing. Um, so yeah, it's like I said, that's a long-winded answer, but fundamentally, no, I do think it will stay top of the agenda but um, there are some headwinds coming and people could say, well, actually, levelling up is a real priority. But arguably, you could make the case that cost of living and the energy uh, price cap that's coming in in October, the increase in potentially in January, is a bigger priority. Um, because that affects not just 
um, you know, people in the north and people in Teesside, that affects the country as a whole and ultimately the prosperity of everybody if that goes horribly wrong. Ben Houchin, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.